Welcome to the Hemonc Pulse, the podcast dedicated to all things hematology from A to Z, brought to you by Blood Cancers Today. And I'm your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist and a medical oncologist. I'm going to bring to you all things hematology to make sure your fingers stay on the pulse by listening to the Hemonc Pulse. Our goal is to bring all things hematology from A to Z. So debates, clinical trials, conference coverages, everything you need. And today I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Sanam Lugavi from MD Anderson Cancer Center to discuss updates from the American Society of Hematology meetings on myelodysplasia. Myelodysplasia, an important entity in hematology, but there's a lot of new advances when it comes to molecular classification, new classification, and how this really impacts the interpretation of trials as well as the impact of therapies. I'm very honored to have Dr. Logavi with me on today's podcast. And before I air the episode that we taped, by the way, before ASH, I'd like to make sure you subscribe to the show, rate the show, and refer your friends and colleagues to the show. For that, we are forever grateful. Okay, let's go ahead with Dr. Logavi on the Hemonc Pulse. We're going to start with some intros to folks who uh, don't know you, a little bit about you and um, and where you practice, what you do, and uh, just tell us a few things. Well, first of all, my name is Sanam Logavi. I'm a hematopathologist and a molecular pathologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Um, I focus on myeloid malignancy. So I'm a hematopathologist by training. So I do, you know, lymphoid and myeloid and myeloma. Um, so everything heme, uh, but I'm really more mostly passionate about myeloid malignancy. So MDS, AML, MPNs, MDS, MPNs, and, um, you know, all that good stuff. And how long have you been at MD Anderson? Is that where you did your fellowship and training? Yes. So I started uh, training at MD Anderson in 2012. So 10 years ago, exactly. But uh, I've been on staff since 2015. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. And you are a prolific tweeter. <laughs> I still think it should be tweeter as opposed to a tweet. I don't know where tweet came up from, but I think still think a tweeter. But I say that uh, uh, because I really think folks need to uh, not only follow you, but you have a lot of the educational components and you have nice, beautiful pictures. And uh, Thank you. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I don't get the answers uh, correct quite often. The easy, <laughs> the easy ones are easy, but then every so often you put some of those. I'm like, what is going on here? And I That's good. We like to keep people you know, engaged. If you know all the answers, then it's not fun. I'll have to tell you, I think that one of the... Um, this is like a genuine, I don't know what's going on with the training programs now because I've been away for a while, but I do think that there should be more systematic way of uh, helping Hemonc fellows understand pathology uh, better. I used to go and to the pathology department and look at the slides and all of this, but it was just, it wasn't systematic unless I would take six months block. I, hopefully things are being done differently now. No, I think that the, the, without taking too much time, I think the problem is that, you know, pathology as a language is so hard to learn. It actually takes takes a couple of years of, you know, training and doing it to just learn the basics. And that's why I think people get discouraged. But I think if you stick to it and actually, you know, look at these, even on Twitter, look at the pictures, look at the terminologies, 
yeah, just become familiar with it. it. It is really helpful. And I think it understand it helps you understand the reports and, you know, maybe a little bit more in depth than you normally would. So, um, so I teach, recommend uh, teach us, but don't teach us a lot for job security. Just like, you know, keep us. All yeah, I know. Right. I don't I don't give you guys the secrets, <laughs> the secrets of the trade. So, so um, on the Hemang Pulse, what we normally do is really try to look at more of the pragmatic, practical data and presentations out there. We actually uh, like to cover conferences. Uh, we also want to do a few things pertaining to trials that are going to be uh, published, as well as really some debates. Today, we are going to focus on myelodysplastic syndromes. Uh, and really, with a, uh, from the American Society of Hematology meeting, so many abstracts are out there. It is impossible to cover everything. But I think I tasked you with whatever you want, top five, six, seven abstracts that you really felt they may have clinical applications. So let's get started. Absolutely. So I'm going to start by saying a couple of things is that, you know, I think 2022 was a major year for, for myelodysplastic syndromes, not so much for therapy maybe, but I think in, you know, classification wise, right? Because we got actually two new classifications, but, you know, in essence, a revised classification that incorporates more genetic and molecular data, which is important. And then obviously the IPSSM, which was also published in 2022, right? The, the molecular IPSS, uh, which is, you know, a tremendous step forward, I think, for myelodysplastic syndromes in terms of prognostication and risk stratification. And, you know, hopefully with, with design of future trials and future therapies. So 2022 was a big year for, uh, for MDS. And I think you'll see that reflecting in the abstracts a lot because there are a lot of abstracts that have focused on validating these new classifications or the IPSSM uh, with their own you know, real world patient data. Um, and so, you know, those are some of the ones that that I actually chose uh, because obviously I'm a pathologist, so I like classification and I like prognostication. Uh, but then also some some you know therapies. I think you know the unfortunate thing with MDS is, and um, you know, I think I've seen David Steensma talk about this, and it, it is real in that we really haven't made that much progress in in you know the therapy of MDS, with the exception of hypomethylating agents. Right. But really, the ultimate therapeutic uh, regimen for MDS, the only thing that is really you know, able to treat these patients is a hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Right. We don't have definitive therapies for MDS. Yeah, that's a good so, question. And, uh, but I want to just comment on one thing. The prognostication, the molecular aspects you mentioned huh? are so important for clinicians today. I mean, we no longer can say just MDS, right? We have to really oh, know absolutely. what's up. So, so your focus is really spot on in terms of the clinical applicability of that. Yeah. So, you know, I think maybe, so let's step back a little bit for the, for the trainees that are maybe listening to this is that, you know, even though we use the, th the terminology myelodysplastic syndrome and maybe view it as one disease, it really is not one disease, right? The only thing that all MD, all things that we classify as MDS have in common is really ineffective hematopoiesis and cytopenias, but they are molecular, molecularly driven by very different alterations. So in essence, they're different diseases, right? Uh, so this makes them, you know, it makes it challenging to say, oh, I'm going to have 
one targeted therapy for MDS because MDS is not one disease. And that's why I think it's partly, um, you know, it partly explains why it's so difficult to treat patients with MDS and to design trials for MDS or to have response criteria for MDS. All right, Absolutely. so I'm gonna start with, with, actually this is not an abstract, but it's a session that I wanna highlight. And I think this is very important you know, you'll be seeing a lot more of the role of inflammation in, um, you know, in developing uh, myeloid malignancies. So if you think about the, the paradigm of myeloid malignancies, uh, what is now believed is that you have a precursor state of clonal hematopoiesis, right? And then you have secondary alterations in genetic hits and you, you know, develop MDS or ultimately acute, progress to acute myeloid leukemia. And this is thought to be a stepwise progression in most cases. Uh, but you know, we know that not all patients with clonal hematopoiesis eventually develop MDS, right? In fact, a very small subset of them do because almost everybody with age develops clonal hematopoiesis. Uh, but obviously the frequency of MDS is much less. So what is really causing myelodysplastic syndrome? It can't be just the mutations, right? So there's a lot of focus now on the role of inflammation and you know, chronic inflammation and the development of myeloid malignancies. So there is a session dedicated to this topic. It's gonna be Saturday, I believe. I actually wrote this down um, on the, you know, or printed it out. So it's gonna be Saturday, four to 5.30 PM. Uh, it's gonna be a, you know, an oral session. And so several of my friends, actually Dr. Catherine King, Dr. Christina Salto, uh, Dr. Eric Petraeus and Dr. Daniel Starsanovsky are going to be the, the speakers, and they're all going to speak on essentially the role of the microenvironment and inflammation in developing MDS from clonal hematopoiesis. So now, that's what I have to say, though, just to clarify, it, this uh -huh. episode will be airing after Ash. So uh, for those of for those folks who are listening right now to this episode. They'll need to go back and look at that session on inflammation and myeloid malignancy is very important. And if they have the virtual or the hybrid thing, they can probably watch that on demand just to clarify. But this is really important. Uh, Sanam, when you say inflammation, yeah, what is it? I mean, you know, what are we talking about? I mean, we, you know, we all get, uh, goodness, like, uh, you know, uh, strep throat and some of us got COVID and you get every so often you get whatever, like, you know, in bronchitis, uh, is it, what What are we talking about? I think the, sh so the short answer is we don't really know the, 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 the triggers or the stimulus, you know, the stimulus that causes the inflammation. Obviously, a lot of environmental exposures can cause it, including the various pathogens that, that you know, you, you refer to. But I think the, you know, the essence when you, when you think of it, I think is a chronic inflammatory state. And, you know, there is debate in which people say, you know, it's, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg story. Is it which one comes first? Is it that inflammation comes first and causes expansion of these, you know, clonal populations? Or is it that because you have this clonal population that is, you know, somehow altered in its immune response, you know, that you, you get an abnormal immune response and that leads to the development of secondary myeloid malignancies. And we really don't know that, at least, to my knowledge, but you know there there is work now that shows you know actually by Dan Starsanovsky by um, actually um, Simona Kula here at MD Anderson 
has a recent publication on this. There are a lot of people that are working, and actually, Yanis Ifantis, I'm a co-author on the on that paper, so I should probably highlight that paper too. They showed that in um, you know in in mice uh, that have tech two mutations uh, and have you know um, inflammatory signaling that these mice develop myeloid malignancies uh, through the role of inflammation. Uh, so again, I think you know there's a lot of Thing, there, we have knowledge of which pathways are triggered. You know, these uh, inflammatory macrophages are, are now very important and are implicated, but I don't think we know what exactly stimulates or triggers the inflammation. And I think it can probably be various things. It's great. Okay. Number All two. right. So, and then uh, before we move on to the classifications, um, let me highlight a couple more um, things, which I think are actually very exciting. So of the ter therapy, um, you know, the, the targeted therapies, the one that I found most fascinating is that, so, it, you know, as you know, um, a large subset of myelodysplastic syndromes have mutations in, in the spiceosomes or in splicing factor genes, including SF3B1, SRSF2, U2AF1, and ZRSR2. So those are the most common ones. Uh, and some of these, like SF3B1 in isolation, uh, are actually associated with very good prognosis. And then others, like uh, you know SRSF2, maybe a little bit more intermediate, um, they they don't have you know good prognosis like SF3B1. So the prognosis can be variable. But there's an abstract uh, by let me see. So the first author on this abstract is Dr. Sinha, um, and this is from the Fred Hutch group and the um, the uh, senior author on the paper is Dr. Stanley Lee. Uh, and this actually, they, they talk about the ter therapeutic targeting um, with PARP1 inhibition. And I think, you know, so PARP1 inhibitors, as you know, in, in solid tumors, uh, tumors that have uh, defects in, in uh, DNA repair are, you know, like BRCA1, BRCA2 mutated, uh, they're um, sensitive to uh, PARP1 inhibition. So um, they, they actually focused on using PARP1 inhibition and uh, in vitro showed that these, um, these uh, agents uh, are effective in uh, eradicating hematopoietic stem cells or MDS hematopoietic stem cells with splicing mutations. So I think this is exciting, it's novel, obviously it hasn't been tried in you know, the clinical trial setting, uh, but I think it is novel and it is exciting. And I think the, the other thing that I wanna highlight after this is that there's actually a uh, an abstract in one of the oral sessions by one of my colleagues here. Uh, so the Rashmi Kanagal, Dr. Rashmi Kanagal Shamana is the senior author. She's a hematopathologist at MD Anderson, my very good friend. Uh, and Dr. Nguyen is the first author on this paper. And they look at homologous uh, recombination DNA repair deficiency. So similar concept in MDS. And they show that, you know, um, MDS with TP53 mutations and complex karyotype tends to have a high H HRD, so for homologous recombination DNA repair deficiency, high uh, scores. Um, and so the, the thing that I found interesting was that, you know, in, in their scoring system, and they did this by microarray, um, the splicing factor mutations were not really, um, you know, one of, the, one of the factors that came up. It was really TP53 and complex karyotype. Uh, but again, the PARP1 inhibition is promising in MDS with uh, splicing factor mutations. 
So interesting. So they, you know, I mean, the, the theory is that for patients with MDS who have the highest score of HRD, you could possibly do PARP inhibition inhibitor therapy. PARP inhibitor. And we yeah, have because in solid tumors, yeah, it is. It, uh, it is interesting. Effective. Okay. All right. So with that, now I'm going to go to several actually papers or you know abstracts that focused on validating the, the new classification systems. So there, there's actually maybe two approaches. So some authors tried to validate the new classification systems, and this includes the WHO and the ICC, and then others tried to validate the IPSSM, the IPSS molecular. Let me start with the IPSSM. Can I, can I ask you a stupid question? I always tell my I always tell my fellows don't ever ask and pre pre dignify your question with a stupid. But honestly, it may be stupid. But my my question is, before we have these classifications out, mm -hmm. the WHO, yes. the, uh, the the IPSSM, mm -hmm. shouldn't they be validated? I mean, why why do we even have them if they, they have not been validated? validated? So why yeah. why do we need to validate them again? Well, okay, so IPSSM was validated, right? So IPSSM was definitely validated. It's in the paper. The data is clear in the paper. You know, people want to apply it to their own patient cohorts. Uh, and I think usually for, you know, for, you know, we all know that publications use best cohorts, best data. And I think that's why people call it, you know, the a real world classification or a validation, okay. right? Okay. Is because people are trying to, I think it's good for, for, you know, to reproduce, to be able to reproduce that. But for the WHO and ICC, so remember, these are not, you know, they're not data sets. They're guidelines mm -hmm. that are essentially constructed based on previous publications and data. And not all of it is based on previous publications and data. And I think these, you know, I think we talked about this before, is that you'll see there's a lot of overlap in how the WHO and ICC have subclassified myelodysplastic syndromes, specifically, you know, uh, pertaining to the uh, genetically defined categories. But I think where there are subtle differences is because there wasn't sufficient data right. and people got creative. Right. So they tried to apply their own experience, which is not to say that, you know, of course, ex expertise has value, too, even though I think Aaron was wasn't he saying on Twitter that expertise is the same as making stuff up. Yeah, I, disagree I don't with I don't that. I don't agree. I don't agree with them. Yeah, I, I don't I don't agree with that either. So I think you know there is value to expertise. But again, that's why these you know, there's minor differences is because there was there was insufficient data in those areas. So with that said, I think this is actually very interesting because in a way, it, you know, the, the few abstracts that use actually very large patient cohorts to do these validations essentially answered some of the questions that, you know, that, that, or the, the differences that, that kind of remained between the two classifications. Uh, so I'm going to start with IPSSM because I think it's, it's easier. So there are, so I found two abstracts that validated the IPSSM. So one is from Germany, from the MLL group. Uh, the, the senior author is actually my, my good friend, whom, who I'm very fond of, Dr. Claudia Hofferwach. The junior author, or the first author, is Dr. Farr. Uh, so they uh, validated the IPSSM and actually two other personalized prediction models. Uh, so one is uh, the one by Aziz Nasha, 
And this is this was published in JCO in 2021, I believe. And the other is the Bersanelli that was also published in 2021 in JCO. So they looked at IPSSM and these two other classifications and tried to apply them to a real world, you know, a large uh, patient cohort. I think they started 735 patients. So they saw that, you know, obviously IPSSM reproduced uh, and, and so did the other two uh, classifications. But what's interesting and they point out is that, you know, so the other two classifications, they actually give a personalized score for, or, you know, a personalized, um, like say life expectancy and risk of leukemic transformation per patient, right? Whereas if you look at IPSSM, IPSSM gives you a um, kind of like a, a risk category, right? So you're very low risk, low risk, intermediate risk, but you don't get, okay, like this patient has this life expectancy. And I think that's where they're different. So they're advocating for a system that maybe can be even a little bit more personalized than IPSSM. But, you know, obviously the, the, three, uh, the three systems reproduced and were validated. And then the other one is um, from, from uh, the other abstract is by Dr. Sata, Elizabetta Sata and you know Dr. Delaporta, who um, I'm sure everybody knows. This is from the Italian group and they, they validated the IPSSM in uh, again, a large number of patients, I think 275 patients. And again, they saw that the IPSSM uh, was much more robust in, uh, you know, in classification and risk prediction than IPSS uh, R, which was the, you know, the historic version of the IPSS. Uh, and so again, I think this is helpful because, you know, first of all, it's reassuring because you have a new prognostication system and you're trying to apply it to your patients. And I would highly encourage anyone that's listening to this uh, podcast to actually go. So if you Google IPSS M calculator, you can actually there's a there's a really um, you know user friendly calculator that Ellie and uh, Elsa the authors of IPSSM have uh, you know made. You can use this calculator. You can use it in the clinic. I try using it when I diagnose an MDS. I try using it. Uh, it's very you know, and I've heard great feedback about it. So uh, if you haven't used it yet, definitely uh, go ahead and use the IPSSM. Are MDS uh, physicians or oncologists, hematologists in general, making treatment decisions based on the IPSSM score? Yes, yes. I think, um, so, okay, let's modify that a little bit. I think definitely transplant decisions, yes. So whether or not to transplant a patient, yes, is informed by their risk, you know, the IPSSM risk. Uh, I think whether or not to treat a patient or not, not really, because that's mostly driven by symptoms. Right. Uh, but I think, you know, symptoms and IPSSS, IPSSM tend to correlate. Right. right? So yeah. usually the patients with higher risk are the ones that are transfusion dependent that, you know, need intervention. Uh, but I think in terms of selecting the type of therapy, probably not much. All right. So then next is the few abstracts that actually tried to look at WHO and ICC. Uh, and so if we if we rewind a little bit and remind ourselves about the the new classifications, the WHO and ICC, uh, so both classification systems actually have two uh, really parent, you know, categories or two umbrella categories. One is the morphologically defined and one is the genetically defined. 
So in the genetically defined, you have the SF3B1 mutated category that, you know, we used to have, which was the, you know, uh, MDS with ring sitter blasts. Uh, the subtle difference here between the ICC and the WHO is that the WHO recognizes MDS with ring sideroblast without SF3B1 mutations, but the ICC restricts this subgroup to ones that have, a, have an SF3B1 mutation. So one of the abstracts here, and this is, I believe, the one by Dr. Ball, so Sandeep Ball, and he's at uh, Tampa, and this is the senior author on this, is Dr. Komrokshi. They looked at, you know, they compared ICC and uh, WHO, and they saw that actually in, in this regard with the SF3B1 mutated category, the ICC classification outperforms WHO in that, the, you know, the cases that have the better prognosis are really the ones that are SF3B1 mutated. So just having ring sideroblasts with other mutations doesn't really, shouldn't really qualify a case maybe for being in this category. And then with Delphi, go ahead. I was going to say, so ring so MDS with ring sideroblast, you can have SF3B1 mutation or not. And the data you're suggesting is the ones who have the mutation have better prognosis regardless of therapy, but it doesn't still does not dictate what type of therapy you select based on that mutation, correct? Yeah, correct. Okay. Correct. So, but but we're also saying that cases that have ring sideroblasts but don't have SF3B1 mutations don't do as well. Those okay. patients don't do as well as the ones that have SF3B1 mutations. Okay. Um, and then with respect to deletion 5Q, the both systems are in complete agreement uh, with respect to TP53 mutated MDS. Again, they're in agreement because they both recognize that cases with... Um, Biallelic loss of TP53 or multi-hit TP53 mutations are the ones that should be in this category. And this is, again, largely based on uh, Ellie and Elsa's, Ellie Papamanuel and Elsa Bernard's paper uh, that was published, I believe, in 2020 in Nature Medicine. Um, that, you know, show, they showed that really biallelic TP53 loss uh, is prognostic in MDS and only a single mutation is not. So again, so this, this paper by the Moffitt group, uh, the paper by, I believe, the German group, uh, the oral abstract by the German group, and then there's another paper from Cleveland Clinic, and the first author on this is Dr. Bahaj, and the senior author is uh, Dr. Mas Masijewski. Um, so they- um, Perfect. And, and they Perfect pronunciation of the name. Keep going, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I tried. And so they, you know, and they actually propose a clinically practi practical approach to predict TP53 allelic state. And the reason this is important, I think, is, you know, so let's review maybe for the trainees uh, what really biallelic TP53 mean, uh, loss means. Um, you, can, you can get to biallelic loss of TP53 in several ways. So one is if you have two mutations, and biologically, it's inferred that these two mutations are in two separate alleles, just because TP53 is a tumor suppressor. And we think that, you know, we believe, it, it, you know, it's biologically plausible that when you have two distinct mutations, they're probably in two separate alleles, leading to biallelic loss of function, right? So that's one way. The other way is if you get a mutation in one allele and deletion of the other copy. So in essence, you're only left with one mutant copy which, you know, again, has loss of function. Uh, so you get biallelic loss. 
The other one, which is a little bit harder to pick up, and you know, we don't really screen for in routine laboratories, copy neutral loss of heterozygosity. Uh, and this is important to know, right? Because if you have one mutation and copy neutral loss of heterozygosity, you again have, in essence, biallelic loss of TP53, but you may not pick it up because on, you know, you won't see the deletion on fish or on karyotype. Uh, so the way we infer that is if your mutant copy or if you, the variant only frequency of the mutation that you have is high, right? So then you think that, okay, there's only representation from the mutant DNA, therefore there's probably copy neutral loss of heterozygosity. But, you know, so again, the, from the Cleveland Clinic, I think this is helpful and practical. So going back to the validation of the, the classification systems, um, again, one from the, uh, uh, the German group, uh, one from a Chinese group. So the um, first author on this one is Dr. Zhang uh, and one from Dr. Ball, uh, again, we said at, at Moffitt. Um, so the other one, they all agree that biallelic loss of TP53 is bad. Those were the patients that did, you know, had the worst outcomes in this, in these, um, you know, various cohorts. So the uh, ICC and WHO are in agreement there as well. The other, uh, you know, difference, subtle difference is that the WHO recognizes two morphologic categories uh, that ICC doesn't recognize. One is hypoplastic MDS and the other one is MDS with fibrosis. Uh, these are not recognized as distinct entities in ICC. Uh, I believe both abstracts uh, showed that there's really no outcome differences with hypoplastic MDS. Um, maybe, you know, arguing for it not being included in ICC. But I do wanna point out something here that I think it's, is important. It's not really, I don't think hypoplastic MDS was separated out in, in WHO. And I wanna say that I'm not an author on the MDS chapter. So I'm, you know, I'm completely um, impartial here, but I don't think it was in, included because it has a distinct prognostic implication. I think it was separated out as an entity because it has therapeutic implications. Because some patients with hypoplastic MDS, particularly those that overlap with the aplastic anemia uh, spectrum, tend to respond to immunomodulatory and immunosuppressive agents. And I think they wanted to highlight this category to maybe give the treatment, you know, the treating physicians that option as well. But you know, in terms of prognosis, it wasn't different in any of these validation series. However, both of the, the larger uh, you know, validation series did conclude that MDS with fibrosis does have uh, a worse prognosis. And they, uh, I think they both highlighted that maybe MDS with fibrosis should be separated out as a distinct entity. Oh, and then you know, our, our favorite topic, blasts. Yeah. Uh, my favorite topic as a morphologist. Uh, so uh, I think both of the, the, the Moffitt series, the German series, and the Chinese series, if I'm not now confusing them, I think they all concluded that, so, you know, historically, if you remember, we had MDS with excess blast one, which was five to 10%, right, five to 9%. And then MDS with, MDS with excess blast two, which was 10 to 19%. And, you know, the terminology's changed a little bit. Uh, I, the WHO has changed excess blasts to increased blasts. And then ICC now has the MDS slash AML category for 10% to 19%. But essentially, the numbers are kind of similar. 
And I think all uh, all of these studies and series showed that once you pass that 5% threshold, so you have increased blast, there is, um, you know, it is associated with worse outcome and higher risk features genetically. However, there's not much of a difference between, let's say, 7% and 13%. So the IB1 and IB2 are not really that different. And then there's there's actually an abstract that is, you know, the title of the abstract is, do we still have to count blasts? And the answer really to this is, and again, this is from Dr. Hopperwalk's group in uh, the MLL group in Germany. And let me see, I want to give credit to the, actually, the first author is Claudia. Uh, so um, the first author is Claudia Hopperlock, Dr. Claudia Hopperlock, and the senior author is Dr. Torsten Hopperlock, both from the MLL group. Uh, and so they, this is actually really neat, uh, but they have, you know, the fourth edition of the WHO, they have the fifth edition of the WHO, and then they have their own classifier, uh, which really, if you use their classifier, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go into a little bit of detail with this, really blast count is not very prognostic. Uh, and what they do is they introduce um, even more additional genetic uh, classifiers, which includes DNMT3A, TET2, U2AF1, SRSF2, and CRSR2, and then ASXL1 and RUNX1. So they include several other factors. Uh, and if you use this classifier, you fall into you know, the different groups based on the presence or lack of these uh, alterations. Uh, and in using this, really blast count is not as um, as prognostic. I have one more that I wanted to highlight. And this was, okay, this is the last one. I think this is really cool. So this is more of a mechanistic study. Uh, so this one, uh, the first author on this is Dr. Martina Sarchi. And the senior author on this is Dr. Sergei uh, Dulatov. And I don't know if you saw the paper by, uh, by Sergei's group. This was, I think a couple of years ago, it came out during COVID is they, they actually found the uh, etiology for pseudopelgar Hewitt cells in MPS, the genetic uh, link. So this, this paper, um, you know, it looks at SF3B1 mutant MBS, which we talked about, and we said, you know, it has good prognosis. So they introduce mutations, they knock in mutations into, into um, uh, hematopoietic stem cell cell lines, and then they, they introduce additional mutations in either RUNX1 or STAG2, which are known to be associated with uh, bad outcomes and you know, leukemic transformation and MDS. And they actually show you know, how introducing these different clonal, or you know, um, I guess inducing different clonal trajectories uh, changes the phenotype of the disease. So I thought this one was really cool, and I really want to go listen to this one. I know this is going to be, you know, uh, in in um, you know after Ash. So if anyone didn't go to this session, you should definitely listen to this one on demand. And those are those are my highlights. I appreciate you going through it. I only have one question, and uh, because you know, sure. this, hopefully, folks will uh, will be intrigued by it. I gotta tell you, and uh, we won't take more than a couple of minutes for this. I'm very happy with any classification that takes away the blast counts completely. I've never really understood how, I mean, I've always felt that some of this is so arbitrary, like you're sitting there, you're looking at the microscope and you say it's 11% blast. Yeah. And it made me wonder whether there's any studies in terms of inter-observer variability of the blast counts and, and based on the expertise. 
have it doesn't to. apply to folks like you who obviously they do this every day but i think when you talk to other pathologists i it makes me wonder so i guess my question to you is i mean you, you, this is positive no i mean do, do you think we're still going to be dependent on blast counts and the percentages no i don't but okay so i'm going to be the devil's advocate here uh, i agree with you i think uh, you know, in general, having arbitrary blast counts to classify disease is insane, right? So I, I agree with that. But I want to put this in perspective and say, so remember, when when the historic classification systems based on blast counts were created, we didn't really have the tools that we have today. Sure. We didn't have the genetics that we have today, genetic information that we have today. And so that was, that was in essence our best tool, right? Because what is really, what is an increased blast count? It's really a manifestation of arrest and differentiation, right? It means that the cells can't mature and they can't differentiate because they have these certain high-risk genetic features, right? So I think it's a phenotypic manifestation of an underlying genetic uh, abnormality or alteration but to have, you know, to say that 19% and 20% are different is ludicrous. That's crazy. But you had to draw the line somewhere, right? So people sat and, you know, did a bunch of statistical analysis and said, okay, 20% seems to be where it's most prognostic, right? But have I ever diagnosed an MDS with 19% blast? No, <laughs> I have never. Because if I count 19% blast, I'm going to count a hundred another hundred cells to make it twenty, right? Yeah. I mean that that's really the issue, like because you really feel, yeah. you, you know, in fact, I mean that's really where I believe the high risk MDS slash AML came in because to your point, if it's an eighteen percent MDS, it's hard to believe that this is biologically not going to behave like acute myeloid leukemia. No, I mean that's and, you know those 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 MDS cases often have high risk genetics. And that's why, you know, so one of the things that I'm, I'm, you know, this is a, this is a pet peeve for me is when people say, you know, oh, the morphology doesn't matter. It's the genetics. Yeah. I agree. It's the genetics that matter, but the morphology is a manifestation of the genetics, yes. right? Yes. So I think that's where we're short changing ourselves by saying morphology doesn't matter. If you put a different AMLs in front of me, I can probably tell you with a high level of certainly certainty, at least with you know the, the recurrent genetics that matter, I can predict what the genetics are going to be based on the morphology. So I think if you know if you take that away from people that are training to be pathologists, I think that's you know you're shortchanging them. But I do agree. It's it's only a, it's a sign, right? It's not the etiology. It's a sign. Right. So in that, I agree with you. Well, Dr. Yeah. Sanam Logavi, thank you so much for being on the Hemang Pulse. You know, you've been on other podcasts, but this is the Hemang Pulse, and we love having you there. We're going to obviously have you back again. So it's an honor. stay tuned. And uh, I know that folks will be listening to this after Ash, but I look forward to seeing you and catching up with you at Ash. Thank you so I much. Thank you, Sadi.